and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about common interests, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and I'm joined by Ellie and Antonia to talk about the nesting habits of birds, what we can learn from them and why it's important for scientists to know about them. And before we get into all that, quick thing to say is that our last two episodes involved live audiences from the Engineering Development Trust, and they actually came up with some really great ideas for future episodes. So, of course, we had lots of suggestions about engineering topics. And I particularly liked the suggestion about how engineering links to other subjects like physics. Uh, and there were some requests for different sciencey things. Physics seemed strangely popular. Obviously, a lot of physicists in the room. Quite like talking about uh, nuclear forensics. And there was a request for earth science and artificial intelligence in there as well. And we've done a little bit on that in the past. So more to come on those things. Because we were talking about a lot about things relating to the environment in those episodes, we had lots of requests for things to do with that as well. So um, sea levels could be something that we talk about in the future, definitely. And uh, depolarization of plastics for recycling sounds really intriguing. Again, we were talking about lots of energy related things as well in the last few episodes. So lots of requests for things there too. And as I say, we've covered some aspects of these before, like renewables, nuclear. We can always find more to say about them. And we've got lots of other ideas on our list already. So we're glad to have lots more suggestions to go with that. So um, watch this space or listen to this space, maybe. To get back to the topic of this episode, it's all about nesting habits of birds. Ellie, you're a zoologist, so I guess you know a lot about this. So uh, what's your favourite bird to talk about? Oh, I don't ever think I can pick just one bird, but we're going to cover a lot. I think... The thing I like most is that the breadth of different birds, they all have different nests. They all do slightly different things for slightly different reasons. So I think really it's each individual bird is special in its own right. Oh, that's a good way of looking at it. They've all got their pros and cons, I guess. I have a horrible story from the weekend about a bird of prey that might come up in this episode, but it is really a bit grim. Oh no. Antonia, to get me off the topic of grimness, I know you don't know as much about this, not being a zoologist, being a chemical engineer instead. So uh, what's your kind of interest or awareness of bird nesting habits? So I have lived mostly in cities and I don't see a huge variety of birds, but there is something that I've seen, not in real life, but on the internet, which I really do question how much of it is based in reality and how much of it was you know a doctored photo or photoshopped and that is the lazy pigeon nest have you seen them i have seen a little bit about it but i i've not really heard anything about this is it like a thing on the internet like a meme i guess it's kind of become a meme or like a collection of photos that people have, are gathering together. I found some great examples um, and maybe we'll tweet about it later or something. But essentially, imagine a window ledge with a few odd twigs <laughs> and then just pigeon egg in the middle. Doesn't feel very secured. And that is the nest. Fair enough. So not really a nest, just some sort of weirdness, I guess, that could easily be just swept aside. It does feel like that. It does feel like, was it accidental? Were the twigs put there on purpose? Were they supposed to? Was there more of a nest before and it just blew away? I feel like no. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not a zoologist. Yeah, like literally someone is just like, here's a pigeon, here are some sticks, I'm just going to take a photo. Yeah. I mean, I would say if that is a real thing, surely they have to be outliers because that's what the internet kind of gravitates towards. It's the weird stuff, right? It's not the everyday, mm. it's the here's this strange thing, there's like one pigeon is doing. I don't know, I've, I feel in two minds about this. So I've definitely been influenced by 
uh, meme culture to believe that pigeons make really rubbish nests. But then, on the other hand, I think they just do make really rubbish nests. Like, they're not one of the species that is putting in a lot of effort. Like, we're going to talk about some examples of really incredible nests today. But these ones, they're just not up there. In the grand bird nest ranking system, they're not even, they're not even making the bottom 10. They're just, they're so poor. <laughs> But maybe there's also, you know, if this is an outlier of a really rubbish pigeon, maybe there is one pigeon out there putting in a lot of effort uh, to make a slightly better nest. But I think, yeah, famously, they are just rubbish. But then does that mean the nest doesn't really stop them or hold them back from being as pervasive as they are as a species? They they very much are in the cities. So did they need any better nest? I think that's the thing as well. If you think... Do they need a better nest? They're clearly surviving. There's loads of pigeons all around the world. Maybe what they have going for them is that they're not putting a lot of effort in, but it doesn't seem to matter. You know, their eggs are still hatching, the young are still maturing. Maybe it's okay that their nests aren't very good. You know, I guess I tend to associate pigeons with people, right? There are pigeon lofts near me where people keep pigeons. And you see, as you say, you see them in cities a lot. I don't see a whole lot around here. They're probably competing with the uh, seagulls, though. <laughs> but if they've got all these people doing all these things maybe they just they don't need to they can just piggyback off what humans are doing that sounds weird <laughs> no i think it makes perfect sense there's a lot of um anti-bird things on buildings which people lobby against you know to stop pigeons and other species nesting and covering you know historical buildings like the spikes and the um barbed wire over fences and the netting and all of that sort of thing and there's actually been there was a study done quite recently i think it was mainly magpies but they found that magpies were ripping off like plastic anti-bird nesting material from buildings and using (laughs) it to build nests which is i think possibly one of my favorite studies ever yeah i think that was on news recently wasn't it (laughs) that's quite funny that's fun (laughs) counterpoint though I've been to sites where they did put nesting, uh, not nesting, netting up to prevent birds because they had plant equipment as in um, like ventilation and air handling units. And because they were on the roof, they did get a lot of bird excrement that they then had to clean because then that could get into your vents and things like that. So, uh, yeah, how do we live in a nice balance without having to deal with all that and also not having to uh, force birds out of the places where we want to be. Yeah, I think there's definitely a balance of like some anti-bird measures are destructive to bird. Like birds will get tangled in nettings, they'll starve, they'll die, which is awful. But yeah, a situation like that where you don't want bird excrement in a certain area for a certain reason... And it can be very corrosive. I think that's one argument to like protect buildings. But there's are better methods of dissuading birds from sitting on a building. But also, they're going to do it. I think that's the thing as well. They're, it's up to us to come up with better defences, for lack of a better word, than the birds aren't going to change their behaviours necessarily. Like, if it's a roof, they're just going to sit on a roof because they don't know any better. So, yeah. But the <laughs> the tangles ones are quite harsh like there's horrible images of birds tangled in like netting and things like that which is just mean and completely unnecessary i think in many ways i've heard that we've humans have 
gotten rid of quite a lot of habitat that the birds would have used. So they're sort of adapting to that. And, and this is one reason that we put up nest boxes in the garden. And I've been feeding birds for years and we have quite a few trees. So we get quite a few birds coming in. And it just kind of made sense to give them somewhere to live as well. Uh, so we have three nest boxes. And I think the first year we put them up, we ended up with some um, blue tits living in them. And they must have created a nest and had babies because I found one, very young one, on the floor. Obviously not alive anymore. So that's a bit sad. But it happens. I've seen it before. And then a few days later, I saw a sparrow coming out of the nest box. And I thought, what? That doesn't seem right. So I looked it up and it's a thing. There's a sparrow colony near us. I knew this as well. But what I didn't know is that sparrows will attack the nests of other birds and destroy the eggs and force the adults out. And I thought, oh. how sad. I really like blue tits. They're like ninjas. That's so brutal. I never thought that of a little sparrow. Yeah, I think it's surprising how many of these like garden bird species are quite feisty. Yeah, I just thought it was rude. There's so much food and so much other habitat around. You really need to do that. You're well-fed birds. Like half the people in my neighbourhood have got bird feeders out. Do they need all that food? <laughs> and I feel like they're not uh, getting rid of the blue tits to then use the nest. Or are they? Were they then nesting in it? No, they were just being bullies. Yeah, wow. pretty much. Yeah, they were just, I guess, you can see it's defending the territory, right? But the blue tits come into the garden anyway and take food, so I don't think they really achieve much. They're just being horrible little birds to the poor yes. blue tits. I really never expected out of the, uh, the little sparrow. No, I always thought they were really cute up until I saw them coming out and of what was an invasion. I'm like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> you make a good point about nest boxes, though. I think that is such a good way to like support your local wildlife. And if you can have like nest boxes in your garden, because you'll get lots of species as well. My boyfriend's parents get quite often blue tits nesting in their garden. Little things like that, great tits come in and lay eggs. It's really nice as well. And you can often see the chicks because you'll see the parents coming back and forth with caterpillars and different food for them. And you'll see the chicks fledge, which is always adorable. Yeah, we'd had great tips the year after, so we did some modifications. We have a specialist blue tip box now with a smaller opening that sparrows can't get into. Oh. It's not being used yet, but you never know. But then the other nest with the bigger hole that presumably sparrows could fit into, we ended up with great tits, and I guess the sparrows leave them alone. So yeah, we did see little heads appearing at the, the hole as they were sort of cheeping away asking for food. And again, another bird on the floor. This one, with more feathers, was a light. It was right next to a tree and I was out in the garden with uh, the dog throwing a ball around and the ball nearly hit this little bird because I hadn't seen it. So I went over to pick it up and was like, do we put it back in the nest? We looked it up again before we did anything. I was like, yes, it's probably okay because it's big enough. And then a few days later, we found either the same bird or another bird from the nest on the floor and we thought, we'll just leave it. Yeah, I think the advice <laughs> is generally if you find a baby bird, leave it because chances are the parents are still feeding it on the floor. Obviously, it depends how big it is and all the rest of it but yeah often they will fall out because it could be windy or it could be a storm or anything but yeah usually leave it and monitor it and see if the parents come back to feed it yeah the only reason we thought it would be a good idea to try and help it back in was because there were quite a few cats around and we didn't want anything to get it when it had like, no chance because it couldn't quite fly it was trying so we thought maybe it is best to put it home, but then it was also looked quite full in there. So <laughs> maybe it wasn't room. Too crowded. Yeah. Oh, we didn't get to see them fledge, unfortunately. It was just suddenly empty and that was it. Once they fledged, it sounds like they don't go back. They just kind no, of... No, they'll be out then. Yeah, they'll find their own places to live and they'll. I guess they come back in the garden for food, but that's it. So it's nice to see them around, but still a bit sad that they're not living in our garden anymore. 
Well, break, especially now as it gets towards autumn, I'm sure they'll be coming back. If you've got lots of fat balls and peanuts and all sorts on your bird feeder, then uh, you might even see this year's brood return. Yeah, but I guess we wouldn't know. And uh, <laughs> I mean, am I right in thinking that they only nest? Like, I suppose it helps to say what's the definition of a nest. I assume it's when they're going to raise chicks and they need somewhere to put the eggs and that's all they use a nest for. But is that right? Yeah, that's what I would say. Definitely, like, for brooding for laying eggs brooding the eggs feeding the chicks and then until the chicks fledge that would be the place where a bird nests i think i would go with that definition for the rest of the time they're kind of nomadic they'll just sleep in different places they don't come back to the same place you wouldn't call that the nest i guess some might most birds and this might be a sweeping generalization but will have a like a nest season so they'll have a breeding time and then the females or the males or sometimes both will then build the nest, lay the eggs. That whole season, usually in the summer where food is more abundant, will happen. And then again in the winter, they'll disperse and, and go back around. What do they do in winter to stay warm? Do they not use the nest then? I wouldn't have thought so, but I couldn't say for certain for all bird species. But largely the nest is for the raising of young, I would say. I could be wrong. So I guess in the winter, they just find some other place to hole up. And, and keep warm and dry. Like a birdhouse? Yeah, I mean, you do see birds going into birdhouses occasionally. They often clear up as well. So, like, blue tits in Laura's garden will probably go in earlier and do a little tidy round, as it were, and, mm-hmm. you know, eat up any spiders or anything that's gone in there uh, before. And then they'll come back, knowing that that nest box is there, knowing that that nest is there, they'll probably come back each year. Ah, we'll wait and see then. We did have um, a blue tit using it occasionally. It was definitely winter because I could sort of watch like dusk. It would go in there just before dusk every evening and that seemed to be it for the night. Like it was using it to hide out. But again, no nest. So I thought that was pretty cool. I was a bit disappointed that it didn't end up building a nest, but also it was the the box of the larger hole. So it might have been attacked by sparrows again. Oh yeah, it could have been. Yeah. So yeah, I'm wait to see what happens next year now. Yeah, I hope they come back. Yeah, but there are quite a few migratory birds near me as well, like swallows, swifts. Because I, I live near the coast, next to an RSPB area, there are guillemots as well, Aww. which is quite cool. I love a guillemot. A guillemot and a razorbill, I think some of the coolest looking seabirds we've got in the United Kingdom. Very fancy. I've never gotten all that close to a guillemot, but when they nest... Um, or when they, I guess, roost on the cliffs. I'm not sure if they build nests. I can't really see them from where I, the viewing platform is. They're noisy. They're like, it's like a team of dogs. Like they're barking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are loud. And they nest in colonies as well. So you often get lots of guillemots all together. Yes. I wouldn't say they really build a nest in the way that like a blue tit would. But they, yeah, they nest on cliffs on the sea, you know above the sea on these coastal places in groups and they'll probably just lay the egg on the bare rock and yeah, incubate it but they're they're cool because they do kind of like what a blue tit would do but to a much much more extent in that they'll be at sea all year and they'll come back to the cliffs in the summer months sort of like i guess june to august maybe may to september depending on the weather breed raise the chicks feed them and then they'll go off again back into the sea also, for the chicks, Aww. that is a fun maiden flight because if you fall, you're going to get all wet. <laughs> Whereas in Laura's garden, you might just have a soft landing on the grass. Yeah, flutter down a bit. But uh, I guess they can... 
because I'm imagining where the cliffs are, there are a lot of rocks underneath, so it could be a plummet into doom. It could, yeah. If you can style it out and glide out of it, I have no idea if Glimot's are good at gliding. <laughs> style it out. <laughs> Maybe one of the, the adults might be able to style it out. But I think if it's your first flight, you've got to put some serious flappage in. Yeah, probably not so stylish. But as long as you avoid the rocks, right? It doesn't matter if you get a bit wet. You're a seabird. You're a seabird. Yeah, that's your that's your whole point. <laughs> You'll be diving. Yeah. i got to say, I'm, I feel like I'm going to keep bringing on the grim news about bird deaths and birds attacking each other. The bird flu is a really big problem at the minute, isn't it? Yeah. And it seems to be particularly affecting uh, seabirds I guess in part because they migrate because when they all come together they start sharing all these viruses that they may not have been exposed to a little bit like freshers week at university (laughs) (laughs) the freshers flu of the bird world no much much more serious than that definitely there's a lot of uh, corpses on the beach which like again it was it was a bit like something out of end of days you started walking and you'd see one and then you see another and then you'd look down the beach and realise quite how many there were, like dozens and dozens. That is awful. Yeah, it's not just coronavirus. It's a problem for humans. There are like three pandemics at the minute. Coronavirus, bird flu and monkeypox, I think. Oh, God. So, and seabirds seem to be particularly affected, I guess, one, because they migrate and also because they're reliant on the sea and the sea is overfished for them, so they don't have a lot of food. Yeah, probably also because they nest in these large colonies, so it probably spreads quite rapidly when they all come back together. I do wonder if they spread out. Do they tend to come back to the same place? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure that you have like reports of... Because they do a lot of bird ringing of these sorts of birds to see where they're going and how far they travel. So you can recatch or rescan the same birds multiple times and see when they come back. It's like ah. those um famous albatross. Oh, wisdom. She's like the best breeding albatross in the world. And she's really old. I think she may be over 40 or something, possibly even older. And she's like come back to the same island for the breeding season almost every year. She's amazing. Wow. I guess there's only like... You can only ring like and tag so many birds, right? Yeah. There's the rest of it just sort of sitting out watching. I'm sure we've discussed this before in another episode. Like you'd sit in a bird hide and you just spend all day seeing what happens. And that would be like someone's PhD, potentially. My research was just <laughs> sitting in this field for a year observing what happens. Yeah. I mean, that is how you learn, right? Is you've got to be out there watching. So, yeah, you can put tags on. And I used to sell um, like animal tracking equipment, bird tags to researchers uh, to see where they were going. And the data you get back is extraordinary. I mean, swallows, something like a swallow, migrates 6,000 miles from South Africa to the UK every year Whoa. and back. And that's not a big bird. Either. Yeah, they're tiny. And they're flying all that way and they don't really stop. They like they sleep on the wing, they eat on the wing. They don't really land until they again get to the UK and build their nests. Wow. Which is why everyone should get swift Whoa. bricks, swift and swallow bricks built into their houses they're trying to make that a uh, like a uk legal requirement that new houses will be built with swift bricks built in is that because again loss of habitat that we need to compensate for that yeah i mean loads of bird species again terrible doom and gloom but are in decline due to loss of habitat climate change etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah it's just one sort of semi-easy thing that you could do is to get a swift brick protect these lovely species see that's a very long way to go for an environment that we seem to be saying isn't actually all that hospitable <laughs> if we need to manufacture ways for <laughs> birds to live i think you've got to remember as well that it's like the flipped seasons because they're coming from south africa if they stayed it would be winter 
and so they're coming for our summer and then so they're having like a perpetual almost a perpetual summer which makes a lot more sense to me yeah i tend to think of our summers as being not quite as um hospitable maybe is the right word (laughs) depends depends what you like i suppose like here it's kind of usually kind of coldish and wet (laughs) <laughs> doesn't sound like what I imagine their <laughs> usual summer habitat is. Maybe it's better, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side and that's why they never stick around for the winter. It's also prey avail- availability. So often they're they're chasing insects, right? So that's what they're eating. So if it gets colder in South Africa, there's going to be less insects. So it's worth then coming all the way up here to eat our insects for us, ah. which we appreciate. Hmm. I, for some reason, want... um, Do sand martins migrate? Are they in the same class as the swallows and the swifts? They are in the same class so much as they're, like, part of that taxonomic group. I don't know how far you Mm. have to go back, but I don't know if sand martins do migrate or whether there's a resident population in the UK all the way around because you hear a lot about the swallows and swifts coming home, but I don't think the sand martins migrate as much or there might be a resident population and some of them migrate ah the reason i ask is because we have some of those around here as well on the sandbanks with the beaches and that is quite funny when you walk over to these little holes in the sand and a bird suddenly flies out (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) i assume that unless they maintain those like burrows i guess they are they're just holes in the sand right yeah yeah doesn't really count does that count as a nest or is it a bird absolutely definitely counts as a nest. I could yeah I can imagine it would take a lot of effort to maintain that if you're not there for half the year like what if it's collapsed and you've gotten all the way from South Africa and you're utterly knackered and you're like oh, I've got nowhere to sleep <laughs> <laughs> it also seems fairly simple though if you are just looking for some sand and you just drill all the way through and then there you go as big as you and yourself it doesn't see you, you and yourself you and your family if they are you know, nesting as a group or not, then it doesn't seem too difficult. They did just manage to fly all the way from uh, from another continent. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the payoff. You, you spend all that energy flying that you keep your nest relatively straightforward and you just have a little hole in the sandbank. Yeah. So sand martins wow. do migrate. So I was, yeah, they come back every year. Like the swallows and the swallows. So they get here and then they have to go dig out a hole like with their beaks, I imagine. I can't really see how it would work. Or they fly fast enough to just straight through (laughs) (laughs) just embed themselves in it and that's it like a bird wrecking ball yeah um no they will be doing it with their beaks yeah wow but also they come back it's the same principle like they come back to the same places every year so chances are there'll there'll be holes left over and they won't have to make too many renovations unless the sandbanks (laughs) collapsed see i'm i am the doom bringer today (laughs) that's all i've got (laughs) yeah well that's i suppose it's the thing as well there's more development, right? So if someone decides to develop their sandbank, their property, their land, then there would be, in theory, nowhere for that particular portion of those San Martins to nest. Which is why we need to protect these spaces, conserve them for, that your cat? for the birds. That is my cat. She's very loud. <laughs> yeah, she's looking at me, demanding more food, as always. She's hearing the word birds, like, oh, birds are food. <laughs> she's an indoor cat everyone she cannot attack the birds maybe maybe if there was bird nesting would it oh she absolutely would if i Mm. if given half a chance she would go for it and the thing the worst thing well the the thing that 
springs to my mind is that cats don't really finish the job they kind of do it to to play more than anything and so i feel like that would annoy me more that it's like this bird has died for your very short-lived enjoyment because no doubt you will just wander off and forget that you did this <laughs> and now there's just a mess so that's why my cat is also in all cat yeah i think it's thrill of the chase a lot of the time like i guess some mm. birds some cats eat the birds that they kill but a lot of the time it is probably just the act of catching them yeah so i guess we've talked a bit about birds in the uk or birds that i've seen a lot of funnily enough <laughs> i guess to get away from that a bit penguins i've seen them in the zoo don't understand them they just smell a fish don't get them <laughs> <laughs> of all the things i thought you were going to say after the word penguins that sentence was not one of them <laughs> oh yeah they're really cute i mean they are but they smell i'm sorry <laughs> oh they do smell no i fully agree with you on that one but they're seabirds they eat fish i mean they smell like fish it's, it's not it's like if you had a curry you'd smell of chicken tikka masala for the rest of the day I kind of think that would be like if I just threw it all over me. This is what I imagine. The penguin just kind of bathed in. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> I mean, they've got very different uh, habits. For if We're talking about nesting. Essentially, like how you raise your young, I suppose, is what we're talking about. Yeah, I think the famous ones are the emperor penguins in uh, the South Pole because they don't really build nests because they do it all on their feet. So they'll come together, they'll breed, and then the female will lay an egg and the egg will be laid on the feet of the female and then they'll do a very kind of shuffly motion and pass the egg from the female to the male who will have like who would have spent the summer fattening up eating loads of fish eating loads of squid and then they've got like a special it's going to call it a muffin top but <laughs> for lack of a better word uh pouch not pouch because that's like kind of marsupially flap of skin you know what i mean yeah uh, that covers like... the egg that protects it from the elements that keeps it warm and then they'll just the males will brood the eggs and the females will toddle off back to the sea and they'll then spend a few weeks getting all the fish getting all the food the males will brood the egg that's when they huddle together you see all those lovely david attenborough shots of the male penguins all tight together doing the little swirls <laughs> to keep themselves warm in the winter and then, yeah, the eggs will hatch, the females come back, and then they'll take turns going to sea to keep the keep the chick alive. Oh. Yeah, that does sound a bit more cuter than a discussion of cats playing with birds and birds killing other birds because they can. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, again, it's if you want doom and gloom, you've got doom and gloom for emperor penguins because there was literally a study <laughs> the other day about how I think it's like 10,000 chicks haven't made it this year because of lack of sea ice, so... Oh. Not even the penguins are safe at the South Pole. No, another effective human activity in an area that we don't even go to all that often, right? No, it's literally the only population is like a few scientists studying different things. But yeah, but I mean, the the behaviour itself is really cool and really fascinating. The fact that they don't, they have no trees, right? So they're not like a blue tip building a nest from twigs and leaves and all sorts. There's nothing there to build a nest from. So they've got this adaptation of their feet and of the little skin flap to keep the egg warm and then yeah go back and feed the chick how did they develop that habit though of walking together with with the egg because because they don't just stay in one spot they kind of get closer to like the sea i think if i remember the documentary right so they'll the males will stay initially in one spot all together oh, and okay. then i think as the egg hatches and the chick matures eventually they'll 
they'll go back towards the sea to be closer. March of the Penguins, March of the Penguins. that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Is that a documentary or was it a film? Or am I mixing it up with Happy Feet and getting totally confused? Happy Feet is a film. <laughs> I think Mark of the Penguins is sort of like a, I don't know, a bit of artistic license taken with, I can't remember, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Based in fact, but maybe a bit entertainmentarised. It's like footage plus story building, I guess. Yeah. Story building, oh my god. <laughs> N- narrative with a bit of fiction, I think. Yeah, a little bit m- more entertainment than perhaps a david attenborough would would be but yeah i haven't seen it in a long time someone watch march of the penguins and tweet us and let us know what it's like apparently they call it a feature-length nature documentary so maybe we should shouldn't say it is dramatized oh okay i take it back but then i guess it it's up to the uh the viewer to decide for themselves and if they want to look into it like all scientists do so you'd sort of you'd look at one body of evidence and then you cross-reference that with other bodies of evidence right and you'd see what is the consensus what do the other experts say so if anyone is going to go and watch it then tell us how it compares to other things that you've watched and do you really believe what you're seeing These documentaries i guess are only as good as the research they're built on not saying that they didn't do a lot of research but you can show it in a different way i suppose yeah absolutely They've got some more exciting foreign examples of uh, fun birds to tell you about. So I think I've snuck bowerbirds in here, which I think is perhaps slightly cheating, but they're cool and I wanted to talk about them. So you have to enjoy it. Um, So the male bowerbird is out to impress, right? So he is spending (laughs) quite a lot of time building this bower structure, which is all twigs and bits of tree and leaves built into sort of a an archway or like a little tunnel and then he'll get different berries flowers brightly colored objects that he can find and he'll decorate his bower in the hopes of impressing a female that will be passing through the area and these you should all look them up because these bowerbird structures are amazing when you consider that they're built by a bird probably not really that much bigger than a blackbird. But what I think is funny about this is that you'd think that would be it. So the bowerbird has built his beautiful bower, he's impressed the female, they've mated, but then what actually happens is that the female will then leave, that'll be that interaction done, and she'll go and build her own nest and lay the eggs and raise the chicks. (laughs) Wow, so it's literally just to attract a mate and then she does whatever she wants. Yeah, pretty much. It's a <laughs> display platform, a stage. Wow. wow. That is weird. So does the male bowerbird <laughs> live in his nest whilst he's built it or after he's built it? While he's building it, he'll be there most of the time. But it's not really like a nest where you would like be sheltered from predators or be like asleep or be resting. It's purely <laughs> like a yeah, it's purely a breeding a breeding stage, a display. If we're defining a nest as a place where to raise chicks Technically not a nest. Doesn't meet our definition. Yeah, exactly. It's just uh, showing off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like purely decorative furniture that does not have great utility. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, art for art's sake, as they say. But I guess if he didn't do it, he wouldn't have the chance to breed and pass on his genes. So it does have benefit to his fitness and benefit to him as an individual bird. But to... The actual raising of the young, I guess not, but then they wouldn't exist if he'd not managed to impress a female with his bower. 
And it seems like a weird set of behaviours to have come about. Like, I assume the reason they do this was to show that they're competitive to sort of show like this is my home and look it's really bright which might attract predators <laughs> but i can successfully defend it but whether that actually happens i don't know maybe i'm just making that up yeah probably less about defense and more about the fact that i must be really fit and strong if i've spent all this time making the biggest tallest most elaborate <laughs> fanciest bower rather than Yes, more about showing off how fit you are and how attractive you are and look at all these things I've collected for you rather than... It's essentially peacocking (laughs) rather than, uh, yeah, being like a defence strategy. So a pigeon wouldn't be very good at this. A pigeon would be rubbish in the (laughs) Valbird building In the Valbird world. But then pigeons don't seem to have a problem with creating more pigeons. So why does the Bowerbird have to go the extra effort? I guess female Bowerbirds are just that much more discerning but also i guess maybe it's more about the availability of resources like they live in much more of a forested area there's more things out there for them to use to build their bower maybe it's part of that or just the fact that they've evolved in completely different continents different cities different habitats different areas and this works for the bower bird and what works for the pigeon sort of works for the pigeon they must lose a heck of a lot of eggs. I keep thinking about those rubbish <laughs> nests. They're just going to roll right out, right? Yeah, a little little breeze and it will just roll away. But maybe it's less, maybe pigeons breed more often. Because I've come at this with more of a like a once a year, maybe two broods in a season mm. type thing. Maybe pigeons are breeding more all year round. I don't know the answer to that, but it could be part of it. Whereas if they lose an egg, oh, it doesn't really matter. We'll have another one in three weeks. But the bowerbirds put a lot of effort in because this is his only clutch of the year. All things to think about. I still find it a bit odd that you're fit. You're competitive. I don't want to use the word fit. It just sounds a bit odd. You're more competitive <laughs> than other birds because you build a fancier nest. I just, I guess that doesn't resonate with me. It's not what I look for in a partner. <laughs> you're not looking, Laura's not going to be swayed with jewels and gifts. Your love language is not, uh, is it just called gifts? I can't remember, but you want something else from your from your partner. So what you're saying is if someone walked really far to gather some really fancy looking stuff, you wouldn't care. Like, you know, it's, it's that equivalent, isn't it? The bower, the birds are trying to find the most like bright, colourful things and they might have to go really far away to find these things. And they've arranged it in a wonderful way. They obviously have great strength. Yeah, I might be impressed and respectful of that, but... It's not doing it for me. Sorry. <laughs> I want a house that's practical. I want a house that's practical. Okay. How about <laughs> the tailor bird then? Because the tailor bird is what it says on the tin. They can sew. They sew their nests together with plant material. So they'll make this like leaf-like structure. And they'll literally, there's videos of them online. You should all look it up and watch. And they puncture little holes in the leaves of their nests. And they sew them together to protect them from predators to make their nests isn't that incredible they can sew that is yeah you think about being a human thing right you wouldn't think animals do it too yeah Yeah. i'm very intrigued as to which came first but i couldn't find out the origins of very impressive Mm. and they're tiny as well like people think birds are not clever but tailor birds have learned to sew and they are Pretty small. I have a really stupid question though. So you know when you you're trying to thread a, a needle with, so you've got your tiny thread and you've got your needle and you can't quite get it in the hole because your eyesight's not that great. 
can tailor birds see the end of their beak to know where they're putting the thread? I don't know if they could see it, but I feel like they would know. Like if you you can see if you picked up something with your mouth, not that you would, but you would know that you were holding something in your mouth. So I feel it's like the same principle. Like if you've got a bit of plant material in your mouth, you would know that the same way that a bird would know that they had it in their beak. Fair enough. I think that's fair. It's like we know where our hand is, even if we aren't feeling it with our other hand. <laughs> yeah, if you closed your eyes, you could still pick up a pen. But how much dexterity do you have? Could you do something? Like, you couldn't write <laughs> with that pen, legibly, probably, I'm going to say. I reckon I could, with my eyes closed. I reckon I could write my name. Probably not if the pen was in my mouth, but... And you're not a tailor bird. Birds that have hands, so... <laughs> <laughs> but it's like instinct. It's not like they had to learn how to write. So it'd be like... Maybe it's more like equivalent to you could walk with your eyes closed. Yeah, that's true. My guess, anyway. But they they are like, you know, they've evolved to do this. So it's not even like it's a challenge for them. They're just capable of it, which is so cool. Mm. At what age do they start? You know, like, do they have to learn it from their parents? Or is it something that innately they'll go, it's raining, it's time to sow? Rain being a trigger, so they can build a little shelter. I'm guessing. <laughs> I am completely like f- making this up because I do not know anything <laughs> about. So the the reason they they sow these nests is to keep the chicks safe, to keep predators out, and so it's camouflage. So they're building the nests from leaves to make it look like it's just part of the tree. So then the predators won't notice, and then it all just sort of blends in. I guess it does potentially have the added benefit that it could keep the rain away, keep them more warm. They live across Asia, so chances are that they will uh, protect them. And if you look at them, they do have what I suppose you would call a roof, like it does offer a lot of protection. So yeah, it probably will keep rain out. Yeah, because I think I read they were in the rainforest. I think that's why I thought of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of invites questions about why is the rainforest called the rainforest? Does it rain a lot? I think we're getting a bit off topic now. (laughs) It does rain a lot. But apparently a single nest can contain between 150 and 200 stitches. Wow. I I mean, I'm I'm obsessed. These are, I think these potentially win for the coolest nests. Or certainly the most elaborate construction. I guess it might be interesting to study this stuff in that it's got the wow factor, right? But there has to be more to it than that. If someone's just spent three years in the rainforest observing these birds, what's the benefit? Not saying there isn't a benefit. I'm just curious. Does there have to be a benefit? Can it not just be? What do you mean, like a benefit to human society? Yeah, like you wouldn't get funding to go at the rainforest to go and watch birds for several years without some tangible reason. Because this is how well, this is how I know the grant funding works from my time in academia. So they must have to justify why they're doing it, right? I guess they go. They're going to learn more. It's less of an engineering outcome in that you need it to prove that you can, you know, then build something spectacular is you're going to study the bird so you can learn more about the bird so you could be the first person to discover this like imagine being the first person to be like i've been to the rainforest five years in asia and i've come back and these birds can sew like people wouldn't believe you so i think yeah that doesn't necessarily have to be a benefit i guess also what could be a benefit is that now that we know that they do this and potentially it's certain leaves potentially it's certain material that they need it can inform conservation practices so if you're conserving an area, say you had, I don't know, a grant to conserve an area in Asia, you could zone in 
on what could be potentially really good for these bowerbirds because it contains the right sort of leaves or the right environment. And you wouldn't necessarily know that had you not spent the time in Asia observing these birds, learning what they did. So the more we know about them, the more we can protect them. So I guess it's about understanding the effect people have had on the planet, how we can counteract that. And I guess the purpose of having these intricate ecosystems that have built up over hundreds of thousands of years, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. If one part of it is affected, what is the knock-on effect? Antonia, this is basically becoming an engineering question. If you got your inputs. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. I think it's a chaos theory question. Maybe. Because the ecosystem is so vast and we don't know what effect we can have on something else because there are so many ways it can evolve from that, not to use the word evolve in a wrong way, but it can develop in such a different outcome from having the same starting point. Like, you know, we might affect the tailor bird and then the tailor bird's nest might have had some other benefit apart from it being a nest for for them, but maybe bugs or other plants had some side effect from that, that it can cascade into another effect. We just don't know unless we start studying it. Exactly. So then I wonder, so if we're talking about chaos theory, it's basically mathematical modelling, right? Can we improve our understanding of maths by observing birds and trying to model what they do mathematically? The population modelling, population dynamics is a huge zoological area. I don't know loads about it, but slightly off topic, there was a study recently, they spent a long time observing wild dogs in Africa, and then they modelled that population that they knew so well. The long and short of it is that they figured out if the global temperature rises in that area by more than three degrees there'll be total population collapse of this of these wild dogs because they can they can see each year if it's hotter the pups don't survive the adults don't hunt as much so then they haven't got enough food for the pups so yeah all you need all these observations to feed these models so that you can predict what will happen in certain circumstances to the population so yeah this is why like long-term studies going to the rainforest and observing the birds in the first place is so important. So answer to my question, it's not just about being cool and the first one to find a new species. <laughs> I mean, there's also probably an element of that, but yes. <laughs> the more info you have, the more you can do with it, right? So we, we can't help stuff that we don't know anything about. So we've got to go out there and, and see what's going on. There you go. i got to say, though, I do like watching the birds in my back garden. It's very distracting. Everyone, apparently there's proven mental health benefits to bird watching so if you need a weekend activity grab your nearest friend pair of binoculars go go watch some birds very mindful very calming is that what the study said you might have to explain it you can google it for yourselves and draw your own conclusions but there's definitely evidence to suggest that bird watching is good good for your mental health well we can do that as a future episode how do we know what affects mental health and psychology which is a field i don't think any of us really know much about so that could be a fun one to research yeah, I might be, I'd be interested in that. I did as much as an AS level in psychology. And in practice exams, I would either totally get what the question was asking and get full marks or totally misunderstood it, get no marks. So it's 50-50 whether, whether or not I'm going to be useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, through Evis, it sounds like you might know the most. So maybe you can help shape that conversation in that case. I think there are some transferable skills from uh, zoology to psychology in the terms of using case studies to learn something about a wider population. 
Yeah, I could see how that would that would carry over. I guess we observe the animals to understand their behaviour. So in the same way you um, observe people to understand what their motivations are for different scenarios. But it's an interesting field because there's a lot more ethics to it. Like watching a bird or any other thing in the animal kingdom. Not too weird. <laughs> watching a human. <laughs> I suppose it's the same thing of like influence. If you get too close to a bird so much that you disrupt their behaviour, then essentially the, the research is useless because you've influenced them in a bad way. And if you tell someone they're being watched, then chances are they're not going to respond in the same way that they would if they knew they weren't being watched. But then if you don't tell them, then you've probably got a whole lot of ethical uh, implications that come with that. Yes. I feel like we could carry on having this uh, weird kind of cyclical conversation about what influences what. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe we can save that for a future episode. So I think what I've gotten out of this is that there are many different nesting habits of birds and they each fulfill a particular purpose. So it gives that helps that bird fit into its particular ecological niche. Studying them and seeing how they change their behaviours gives an idea of how healthy the planet is and how much of an effect we've had on the planet as a society. Uh, and where we've bred pigeons, for example, we've seen how human intervention can subvert natural survival instincts of what should be a sensible nest, in theory, <laughs> and lead to something very weird. But then we've also shown how intervention in other areas can help wild birds to survive uh, in an environment that we've had so much influence over. So our example of putting up ne nest boxes in your garden is one way that you can help counter habitat loss. On that note, we've enjoyed this slightly weird rambling episode and we hope you have as well if you have any more suggestions to add to the impressive list that the engineering developed trust have given us for future episodes please let us know and we'll see you next time the views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them they do not represent any industry or organization if you enjoyed listening to these views it would really help us out if you could rate us leave a review and tell a friend this podcast was sponsored by no one but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering please get in touch